The content of this podcast is provided as general informational purposes only. It is not intended for, nor should it be used to replace professional behavior intervention and advice. This is Sissy. And this is Susan. And we are Function Junction. Behavior matters. It does. It does matter. And Sissy, I'm so excited to have our friend Trisha Lund back on the podcast. Um, I reached out to her because I have a couple of students who are experiencing identity issues. And I asked Trisha if she would be comfortable talking about that. And she asked me a question that made me realize how very uninformed I am on the topic (laughs) because she said, she asked, um, is it sexual or gender identity? And I thought, well, I think it's gender, but I don't really know. So welcome, Trisha. Thanks for coming back again. Thank you. You're welcome. Trisha, I wonder if you could enlighten us a little bit. Um, When I started doing a little bit of research um, on it, uh, the source that I looked at said that sexual identity issues are six times more common in girls with autism than typically developing girls. And I was wondering if you had read that and if you just have any information to enlighten us on understanding this issue a little bit better. Um, So first, when it comes to definitions, we can kind of like break down, uh, you know, gender identity versus sexuality and stuff like that. So there's a resource that I can send to you guys. Well, there's two. There's one called the gender bred person. And then there's one called um, LGBT unicorn or trans unicorn or something. But essentially what it does is it breaks down the concept of gender into all of these different parts. And so one part is you have biological sex. And so those are the the physical sex characteristics that you were born with someone who has a vulva versus someone who has a penis. Um, And those don't necessarily change unless you're going to have some sort of surgery to change it. And then you have gender identity and that's your internal view of your gender. So you could have a penis, but you could, your gender identity could be female because that's how you see yourself. So gender identity is all internal. You could also dress like most um, typical men may dress, but you view yourself as female. Um, And then you have gender expression. And so that's how you communicate your gender or your internal feelings to other people through clothing, makeup, mannerisms, hair, voice pitch, all that good stuff. And then you have sexual orientation. And so this, you can actually break down into two things. So sexual orientation is who you want to have sex with. And that's actually different from romantic attraction. So there's two different things. So you can be romantically attracted to one gender, but sexually attracted to another gender, which, and I know when I first started reading about all this, I was so confused because I think I grew up in a very like binary world. Like there's, there's black and white, you know? And there also, I didn't, I don't think I ever really understood the difference between um, being sexually attracted to someone versus being romantically attracted to someone, but there, there is a difference. And can I ask Um, you to go back real quick? What did you say that I heard the gender bread, but what was the unicorn? It's called the gender unicorn. The gender unicorn. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, and it's a good visual. I think even uh, just, I think for the lay person to see all of the different stuff that goes into gender and it's not, you know, binary as we may think it is. And then you said there was another one, something about the gender bread. Gender bread. Uh-huh. So the gender bread came first um, and then it was updated. And the newest one is the gender unicorn. Oh, gotcha. Um, okay. But I, I like both of them. So. Okay, well, thank you. So, yes, there is a big difference, um, obviously. And so in terms of 
you know, people on the spectrum. What are you seeing? What are you finding in your research with regard to prevalence and things like that of, of people who are experiencing these issues? First of all, in general, autistic individuals, they're more likely to be gender variant, meaning that they're more likely to identify as being non-binary or, or gender non-conforming or transgender. So in general, you're going to see those more in autistic individuals. And why do you um, think that is, Trisha? So it's interesting. I was going back over it before meeting with you guys because I'd, I'd read some things, but I wanted to make sure I got it correct. They're, they're not sure. So there's some different theories. So one of them is that just in general, autistic individuals are a little bit more honest with regards to their internal feelings because they don't always know, uh, you know, when to filter or whether to filter. Or maybe it's not valuable to them to filter. And so they're more likely to be honest in their gender expression. Sure, that makes sense. And then um, there's also the theory that autistic individuals are less likely to be constrained by social rules. Gotcha. Know? We say all women do this and they're, no, that's not true. So they're just more likely to not kind of go based off of what everyone else is doing. Um, And then there's also a theory that they're more likely to be um, honest about their internal experiences. Okay, we kind of went back to that. There's another theory that they have, because of the deficits they have in social communication, they're less knowledgeable about gender norms in general. Sure. Sure. And I did read a book and this was by autistic individuals who were transgender. And I liked it because it wasn't researchers thinking about, oh, I wonder, you know, what this population thinks about it. It was them explaining, this is what I think. And even there, there was a difference. You know, some people believed in this theory and some people didn't believe in that theory. So there's still a lot of question. What was the book with the people on the spectrum, by the people on the spectrum? Yeah, it is called Trans and Autistic. Wow. We heard a couple of episodes ago, a person on TikTok who's non-binary, and they said something pretty profound that you don't have to get it to be kind. Which I am, I just absolutely love that, Trisha. That's going to be our motto for 2022 in the podcast. Yeah, so as a, you know, as a raised similarly to you, Trisha, where it was pretty binary in my life, that was new and different for me to think about. I, I don't have to have experienced it or or really know someone who's experienced it in order to be able to say, oh, it is different for you. And that's right. okay. <laughs> right. Well, and that's why I think it's so important for behavior analysts in particular to be trauma-informed. Just because you haven't gone through it doesn't mean that it's not valid for someone else. Um, and it's it's really interesting. I have a couple clients now who do identify as non-binary and some of them have come out to their family and some of them haven't. But for those, well, in both situations, we have to try to find a way to navigate what are the family values versus what are your values? So I think that's really interesting. You said that it's important for us to be trauma-informed And where can we get more information to become more trauma-informed? Yeah, so a couple sources. So one of them is Camille Kolu. So Camille is C-A-M-I-L-L-E. And the last name is Kolu, K-O-L-U. And she is kind of the one that's pioneered this concept of being a trauma-informed behavior analyst. And she has got a lot of trainings that I can also send the link to you. I would love that. Yeah, so she's got a lot. But one thing that I've also learned too, if you're going to be trauma-informed, 
is that you have to read personal experiences. You have to go read accounts and blogs and talk to people who are neurodiverse and who are gender diverse because they are going to be able to tell you specifically about the trauma that they've gone through, you know, well, the, and, and you and I may not think about that. Right. Well, and I know, you know, Sissy and I have talked with a lot of our school districts and a lot of them are dealing with a lot of trauma uh, informed um, issues with kids on the spectrum just because of COVID. Oh yeah. It's crazy. Even just, you know, and when we think of trauma, we tend to think of, you know, war or famine, but there's evidence to show that, even the little minor traumas that we experience, well, minor, quote unquote, um, are huge, especially if it's daily. And if you think about um, neurodiverse people, they are experiencing trauma daily because they're in a place that doesn't always understand their needs, right. doesn't meet their needs, sometimes says that their needs are invalid. Right. How traumatic is that? Right. You know? Yeah. And even in a circumstance where you're trying to meet their needs, if you you don't communicate well and you're not feeling well, there's trauma there, even when people are trying to help you because you had a need that needed to be met, but it wasn't met, even though people may have cared very much to meet the need. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So I have a student who is in middle school and she is depressed and has some suicidal ideations and she just sleeps all day at school. And I, you know, I'm struggling with knowing what to do and how to help her. And so do you have any ideas or thoughts on a student like that? So when it, first of all, when it comes to girls, girls are more likely to feel distress about being gender variant. So presenting differently than they feel or differently from everyone else feels that they should be. So they're usually more distressed about that than people who identify as male. So I, cause I was trying to find, we'll do more girls experience being gender diverse versus guys. And there's, I mean, statistics are everywhere depending yeah. on, you know, but, sure. but one thing that I did find in general was that really girls experience more anxiety and depression about that. And so I think that's where you start is, is focusing on that, the anxiety and depression. So there's a really interesting a research article that was done by the Trevor Project. And so they're an organization that works with LGBTQ plus individuals. And they did a study. And let me me interrupt you really quick. Is it Trevor, T-R-E-V-O-R? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so they wanted to see, they were looking at suicidality um, among LGBTQ plus individuals. And they found one of the best ways to um, decrease the the suicide attempts for individuals that were LGBTQ was to have at least one accepting adult. If they had one accepting adult in their life, the suicidality decreased by 40%. Yeah. So that's, that's key. That's so important. Um, I had, I had talked to a friend of mine and he suggested calling the Montrose center here in Houston Mm -hmm. to, maybe see if we could find someone to come out and talk to the campus or something like that. But yeah, I mean, I think that she, she has, I think one of her teachers is very accepting, but I think there's a lot going on. I think there's a lot going on at home with her mom kind of not really taking it very seriously and kind of trying to be her pal and her buddy versus getting her actual like counseling help, you know? So I think too. So, and I'm not saying that this is the case with, with where you're at, but some, 
some individuals don't feel safe at home. And so even if they're safe, even if they have that one safe person, if you are still expected to go home to a place where you don't feel safe or valued or cared about, you know, that's, that's going to do a lot. So a couple of things that I found too, were there was a really great article that looked at, um, they were trying to find how to do groups, how to do like a, a group therapy or not, not just therapy, but, you know, even something led in a school setting for, individuals that were autistic and gender diverse. And what they did is they wanted to hear from individuals that were neurodiverse and gender diverse in order to see, hey, is this working? What needs to be done better? And they found a couple of things. One thing they found is that usually parents need their own group because parents need to find a way to ask these questions and not necessarily asking their child these questions, because I think sometimes the questions can come off as maybe a little bit judgmental about them meaning to be. So making sure that the parents have a way to feel supported, you know, in that journey. You know, having a child with a disability has its own fair share of things to work through as a parent. And you've worked through this thing. And suppose you come from a fairly strict binary thinking background and now you have this new thing that you have to work through and be able to say oh well you know you've done the other you can do this yes yeah yeah you know and I know there's also a lot of grief involved with families and then when they get the diagnosis and you know I would just think that they you know when this kind of thing comes up it's kind of starts that whole grief process over again you know but Trisha I was going to ask you do you do anything other than read research You know, so it's funny. I was thinking about that the other day and trying to find out, you know, what makes me happy because I love my job, but then there are parts that really frustrate me. I love reading research that is by autistic individuals. And I recently found it's a journal called Autism in Adulthood. And it is amazing because it's it's still research. It's all that stuff that behavior analysts love, but it is, it's specifically by autistic individuals and they, they've got to be on that research team. You know, it's not just a bunch of BCBAs thinking we're going to show the world how to work with autistic people. Um, so that's where most of these things come from. That's super cool. That's that I'm going to look into that for sure. So, you know, you talked about gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, and then you talked about something else. The sexual being sexually attracted versus romantically attracted. Yes, yes, yes. And so when you, you know, do you have any clients that you work with right now that are going through any of these things? Yes. And this is what I'm finding. I get so excited. Well, first of all, let me say that if, so I, I have completed all my coursework to be an ASEC certified sexuality educator. So that's a national certification. And I will say what that stands for uh, American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. Okay. And so Um, if I, oh, almost. So I just have to put in, I have to get some paperwork together and send it all off and a nice little fee or something. Um, But I will tell you if, I don't think I would know how to handle a lot of these situations if I hadn't taken that that coursework and so that's what that was one thing I was going to say too you know if you if people are interested in helping I would highly recommend going to trainings about how to work with LGBTQ individuals and I would recommend going to some that are actually by LGBTQ individuals and there there's two that I was going to tell you about that I love so one um 
It's called Empowered, a center for sexuality. And they provide a lot of really great training, not just on the gender diversity side, but also on how to work with neurodiverse individuals. And the guy who owns the company does really cool stuff using role-playing games. And he's found that using role-playing games is actually a really good way for some individuals to try on different personas. And so, so for instance, I had a client who I thought he was non-binary, but wasn't really sure. And he wanted to kind of, he wanted to try different things, wanted to try makeup and hair and, and clothes, but he was nervous about how to do that. And of course, his mom was super nervous about how to do that. And so I recommended, you can go onto this online format, you, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or whatever it is, and build a character that you want to try. And and try that Good character, idea. and it's an accepting place. I don't think he's done it yet, but I but I do. But I think that that is a really cool idea. That's it's, a you know, great you idea. And so, with the empowered, the Center for Sexuality, do you get your continuing education credits there, or yes. oh, you do yes. for BC mm-hmm. BACB? Yeah, so, so I, it's cool because I can get both. I can get my BCBA and then I can get the certification for the, the sexuality educator stuff. Oh. Um, and there's one, one more I'm going to tell you about. It's called Upswing Advocates. And it's the same thing. They have trainings and it's related to neurodiverse and gender diverse. I and there's one more, but I can't remember the name, but I'm going to send it to you. So, I know you will. Yeah. And I'm so looking forward to learning more. I'm going to join both of those groups because, you know, I remember when the team was kind of presenting the cases to me, I kind of, I said, you know, I knew it was coming. I just didn't know when, and it's here. And, you know, we talk a lot about autism acceptance and moving away from autism awareness. And now I think we need to look at this whole piece as an, as a level of acceptance. And like Sissy said, and I just absolutely love it. You know, you don't have to get it to be kind. But the thing is, for me, is I want to get it. You know, I want to understand. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I appreciate, God, this is just so interesting. God, Sissy, I just learned so much when we talked to Tricia. I I just, I want to just take notes. I did. I took, filled out like 14 post-it notes while she was talking. It was just so interesting. And I know our listeners are going to look forward to part two after hearing part one. You know, she is such a powerhouse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that it comes through so strongly with her is the level of care and dignity that she expects people with disabilities to be treated with. You know, I mean, it, you know, I love it. She's awesome. I love it. I was just talking to a colleague today at work about being more trauma informed. And I said, if you want to have anybody come and present, for you, this would be your gal, you know, because she's just, oh my gosh, there's so much I don't know, you know, and I just, right. I want to learn so much more mm-hmm. and I'm going to join those organizations. And anyway, it was just a great, a great interview. Part two is a great interview as well. Yeah. Yeah. She's really just so interesting to listen to, fun to listen to, inspiring to listen to. Very much so. So I have a question. Would you like to hear it? Yes, I would. All right. Um, People with autism have a higher likelihood to be different with their gender expression. All but true are the following reasons. A, they're more honest about their internal experiences. B, they're less likely to follow social norms. C, they really care what other people think. Or D, they're less knowledgeable about gender norms. Well, 
they are more likely to be very honest about what's going on. They'll tell you what they're thinking. They'll tell you what they're feeling. So that one's true. Yeah. Yeah. And they, you know, our social norms are not necessarily the social norms for people on spectrum. Absolutely. That's what makes autism kind of its own culture, as Gary Bezabov used to say. Yeah, right. So the one about caring what other people think. Okay. So yeah. So, you know, they really care about how people think. And I tell teachers all the time, social praise is great for some kids, but for kids with autism, they don't really care if you're happy. So I think that might be false. And then the fourth one is they're less knowledgeable about gender norms. So the less knowledgeable about gender norms is it makes it easier for them to not feel pegged, right? If you're thinking about that as a reason that is probably true and the one that is not true is caring about people. Yeah, I think that that her point was that, you know, gender norms aren't really something that's important to them, right? Because they don't really care what other people think and they're not really much into conforming to our social norms. They're less likely right. to follow social norms. So with that yeah. being said, then they would be less knowledgeable about gender norms because that's not something that they are going to do a lot of research about. Yeah. And probably gender norms are probably those part of a hidden curriculum piece too, right? Maybe. I mean, you know, we, totally. we learn those incidentally over time totally. and totally. they're not necessarily direct taught. So maybe a lot of kids on the spectrum wouldn't know those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then it makes sense that they wouldn't follow them. And it makes sense that they're more important, uh, honest about their internal experiences. But I think the one we can rule out is that they really care about other people, what other people think. And I would say that one is untrue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think they care about what some people think. Yes. But I don't think it outranks what they think. Correct. Absolutely. The things I admire about people on the spectrum. That's right. That's right. Me too. Well, Sissy, thanks. Um, thanks so much. This was a great interview and a good question. And I think that people are going to be really um, inspired and, and, and more informed after part two. So have a great weekend, everybody. And we will follow up next week with part two of our interview with Trisha Lund. Take care. Have a great weekend. Bye.